Father, we bow here before you this morning again in gratitude and in worship. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you, Father, for your provision for us, your grace and mercy that is poured out all over us. And Father, we do pray for this family that was struck by tragedy this week in our community. And Father, I pray for this family. I pray for strength for them. I pray for your blessings. I pray that through this ordeal, everyone involved will be drawn closer to you. Father, I pray for this little girl that's in the hospital that she would be healed and that, Father, she, she can get back to her life as normal as she can. But, Father, again, everyone that has been touched, I pray for them. And, Father, I ask that you would bless them and surround them with your love and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we all be seated. For those of you that haven't heard, we've been praying for my daughter Bethany. Bethany had her baby last night at 7 o'clock, and I'm doing well. So I appreciate your prayers for me. It was hard, but I got through it. Um, but everything is fine. The baby and Bethany are both doing fine, so I appreciate all of your prayers and concerns. Do you know, when I was first saved, I was a, a young man in my 20s and... Um, early 20s, probably 21, and uh, before I really came to know the gospel and what it was. And I uh, was very afraid, I was very apprehensive about the, you know, church and church business and Christians and all this stuff. And at any rate, uh, it took some time. It took some time to adjust. It took some, took some time for me to grow in my faith and get to 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 know more about what the Christian life was all about. There were some people in my life early on that helped me mentored me, guided me, supported me, that type of thing. And I was would just consume everything that I could as far as studying and learning all that I could about the Bible. Ultimately, you know, you know the story. I went to Bible college. I've told you before. While I was there, a couple of years into it, I had the opportunity of pastoring a little church, maybe 50 people um, you know, on a good Sunday. Uh, and again, it was something that I was had never done before, and I was scared to death. I had no idea what to do. But I learned, and I grew, and I changed, and I matured, and I gained the knowledge that I needed as I, right when it was necessary. I gained experience, and my faith grew tremendously from that time there in that little church. Um, the Christian life is just like that. That we as believers, when we first start out in our faith, in our walk with the Lord, or even a, a new ministry endeavor like pastoring that little church, we don't know all there is to know, and we have never experienced some of the things that we're going to be called upon to experience. And we have to learn, and we have to grow, and we have to mature. And that's what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is about growing and about maturing and about learning to walk with the Lord and about learning what God wants and being faithful to that. In the Old Testament, they called it wisdom. They said, you know, the wise man is the one that knows what the Lord wants and does it. That's a wise man. In the New Testament, they call it maturity. And either way, it's the same thing. It's the application of the truth of God to your life and learning what it is that God wants you to do and then doing it. That's called maturity, when that becomes a part of your life. And through that, you learn to stand on your own. You learn that even though you had mentors and, and, and help and instruction and pastors and teachers along the way, that at some point you have to learn to stand on your own. Now that doesn't mean that those people aren't necessary or important in your life, and we all have to have mentors and 
instruction and people to help us along the way. I still have very good friends and I have authors that I like to read and that I respect and I trust and I learn something as I study each week for a sermon because I always need that. But at the same time, God says to you and to me as well that we have to learn to stand on our own and to not be looking to people for crutches and we be able to do what it is that God wants us to do. Now, here's Here's the question that we're going to deal with today, and uh, as we go through this, this will unfold for you. But the question is this, what does it take for you and me to stand on our own? In other words, I want to be strong enough as a believer to be considered mature and to be able to stand on my own in, in my relationship with the Lord and to not need the assistance all the time, and to be able to make those decisions and judgments for myself. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today, answering that question. But before we get there, I want to take you into the text, and I want to show you where I'm coming up with this question, why I'm approaching this, because we're doing a study in the book of Judges. So it might be an odd question to be raising here with the book of Judges. It doesn't seem to go along with that Old Testament book, but it does. And I'll show you in a moment where I'm getting this from. Do you know, as we have studied this book, and we started last week, and we studied Joshua before that, that when Joshua died, they went into the period of the judges. And they fell into idolatry again. We've studied the, the history of that. And for a period of 400 years, which the period of the judges lasted, Somewhere in approximately 400 years. That's long. That is longer than our country has been in existence. Do you realize that? Tremendous length of time. But during that time, that was that period. In Judges chapter 2, verse 15, we, we ended with this last week. I, I want to begin with this, this verse this week. It says this, Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Now, the reason for that is because they have ignored all that he said and they've gone back into idolatry. In the land here, the land of Israel, the land of blessing, they decided that they were going to go back into idolatry. Joshua was dead and so we can do what we want. Well, it picks up in the next verse, in verse 16, with this statement. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Um, the period of the judges. They would go into sin and God would, because of their prayers and crying out to him, he would send a judge. Now, what in the world is a judge? And why would a judge sitting on a bench with a gavel in his hand, how could he help them? Well, that's not what it means. Uh, I don't know why, honestly, why they were referred to as judges, but that's what they were called. And what it means basically is that it's a deliverer, a leader, Somebody to correct a problem, somebody to guide them. That's basically the person that a judge is. And, you know, I've often thought in the in past, I, I thought the idea behind a judge was that all of the nation of Israel had sinned, and the judge came in and rescued all of the nation at the same time. But really that's not the case. Uh, each of these judges really delivered a small segment of the nation. In other words, not everybody went into idolatry at the same time. Um, The tribe of Judah might be falling and slipping into idolatry. 
and that God would send some, uh, some of the surrounding people that they were supposed to get rid of, bring them in to conquer them and make slaves out of them. It wasn't the whole nation, it was just a certain locale within the nation. And they would cry out and God would send the judge or a deliverer. Uh, that happened over and over again. As a matter of fact, look in your bulletin if you've got one. I've put in there a chart that I got out of a book this week that I thought was very interesting. There were 12 judges in all. They're listed there that are talked about in the book of Judges. Each of them represents their own tribe, where they came from. All of the 12 tribes are listed there. So a ju- one judge out of one tribe 12 times over the 400 years of their existence. To the right, you'll see there are some numbers. The first number is the length of time that they were being oppressed. In other words, God would send in the Philistines and they would conquer a certain segment of the nation. And they would hold them in bondage for eight years, let's say. There's the first one here, Othniel, um, listed for eight years. And they, God would send in a, a judge and he would conquer the people and, and, and bring them out of bondage. And there would be 40 years of peace. So that's what the second number represents. How long they were being oppressed and then the length of time which they were at peace and not at war. And so it goes on down the list there 12 times. And you'll see some of those numbers are rather large of being in bondage and, and then being having at least some time of, of, of freedom and peace in the land. So that went on again for 400 years. The list of judges, and we're not going to be looking at all of them through this study. The, length of the list of judges um, is not necessarily in chronological order because they didn't represent the whole nation. They were dealing with segments of the nation, so some of them are not in chronological order. Some of them overlap. There may be Gideon up here somewhere and Samson down here somewhere, and, and their time period may have overlapped a little bit. That took place as well. Uh, the book of Judges was written by Samuel. This is after it's over, 400 years, Samuel, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes about that time then, tells about that history of that time. Some believe and consider Samuel to be the last of the judges. He's not mentioned because he's the one writing it. But he closes out that period of time and introduces the time of the prophets. And from that point on, even though there had been prophets mentioned in the Old Testament, they go into what is known as the golden age of the prophets. The monarchy begins. The kings, David and Solomon and Saul and so forth. And during that time of the kings, prophets come on the scene to prophesy for and against the nation. So that's kind of in a nutshell where we are in this study. And if you want to summarize this period of time, listen to this verse, okay? It's in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. Here's what it says. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes or what they wanted to do. And you look at that and you think to yourself, how sad. No leader, no king, nobody to guide them. All of that 400 years, the nation as a whole did what they wanted to do. And all you got to do is look at our nation, and you find the same thing taking place, don't you? Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. It has to be. Otherwise, somebody like the city of New York or the the state of New York couldn't pass a law to abort babies at the time of birth unless everybody had the freedom to do what they wanted to do in their own eyes. And we're sinking as fast as we can as a nation because of it. 
There's not any strong leadership in this nation. And we're headed the same direction that the judges ended up. So as we look at this story, this, this period of time in the Bible, we're going to learn a lot of things about ourselves and about our nation. And today we're going to be talking about the topic of standing uh, strong and standing on your own and how that is such a, an important aspect of the Christian life. But let's jump into the text, okay? Verse 16 said, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now we jump into verses 17 through 19. Let's look at this. It says, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and to worship them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Now stop right there. They did obey the judges while the judges lived. This is what they're saying. But when the judges died, then they went right back to what they were doing. That's what that's talking about. They followed the, they um, took up the ways of their ancestors and, um, I'm sorry, they, they, they turned from the ways of their fathers and grandfathers. And then they went back into idolatry again. In verse 18, it says this, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord um, relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. In other words, God saved them out of it because they had cried out to him. They cried out in agony, saying just like they did in Egypt, Lord, please help us. Then he'd get them out, and then they'd go right back into it again. In verse 19, and here's the key verse in this passage, okay? So pay attention. It says, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, the part that I want you to see is this. When the judge died, then the people returned to their evil ways. Prior to that time, while the judge lived, they followed the Lord. Now, here's the point. Why is it that when the judge passed away and the judge was no longer looking over the shoulder, when the judge was no longer browbeating them, when he was no longer laying down the law for the land there, why is it that they couldn't stand on their own? Why is it that they went right back into idolatry again? What they needed and what was expected and what God wanted for them is that now that you have been instructed, now that you've seen what I want, then stand on it. Do it. Be the people I've called you to be. But they couldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't stand on their own. And let me tell you, here's where I'm going with this, because within the, the churches today, within Christianity, the same problem exists. We as Christians do great when a pastor's browbeating us, or when a teacher's riding our back, or when a mentor is calling us each week to make sure that everything's on track. And there are times for those things. There are times when those things need to be done, especially with someone that is new to the faith. But at what point? At what point do we as believers stand on our own? See, at what point do we, in the absence of a leader, in the absence of a mentor, in the absence of, as in Israel's case, a judge, when do we begin to stand up 
on our own and do what is right simply because that's what God has called us to do, not because somebody is expecting it of us or forcing it upon us, but because we made the choice of our own free will that we're going to take a stand for God and live like we should. You see, the mark of maturity is found in what you do when no one is looking. That's what makes a person mature. That's how you define a mature believer. I've had so many times in the course of ministry, not just not here, but not just here, but in other ministries as well. People come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm just you just need to step on my toes. You just need to browbeat me. Pastor, you just need to you just need to beat us up today because I've I've just had a terrible week and I haven't been doing what I should. And my point is this why is it my responsibility to do that? Why can't you stand up on your own? Why can't you be strong and mature? At what point do I or or any other teacher or leader in your life, at what point do we have to stop feeding you bottled milk and you take a stand for what's right? When does that take place? Because there has to be a time when you come to that point where you are able and willing and committed to knowing the Scripture and making godly choices. See, that's the mark of maturity. So now the question then becomes this. What will it take for us to be able to do that? What will it take? Now I have put down two things here uh, that I want to share with you. Now tonight when you get into your groups, one of the questions that I've put on your list to be asked is that you come up with some ideas on your own. Because there could be any number of things that fall into this category of what it's going to take uh, for you and me to be able to take a stand and, and be mature and make godly decisions. Now, I've got these two things because I think that everything else comes out of these two things. So I'll just go ahead and tell you right now what the two things are, and then we're going to talk about them. Number one is this. It's going to take this, a good working knowledge of the Bible. If you're going to stand on your own, you're going to have to have a good working knowledge of the Bible. And number two is this, a commitment to live out what you learn. A commitment that you have made that I'm going to live out now what I have learned in this knowledge of the Scripture that I have. Everything else comes out of that. Because no matter what it is that you come up with in your, in your theory or ideas to say, okay, this is important, and granted, they will be important. It all comes out of this. And so if this is askew, if this is not right, then no matter what I come up with, uh, well, really, I wouldn't come up with anything. To be honest with you, because if this, this is out of kilter, then I'm not going to come up with any other things to, to, to say to this question of what it's going to take for me to be able to stand on my own. Let me take you outside into, into the New Testament here. And let's look at some passages here as we answer this first question. I'm sorry, this, deal with this first point. That what it's going to take is a good working knowledge of the Bible. I want to read you this verse. It's in First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Here's what it says. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, let me explain it to you, okay? Because when he's talking about growing up in your salvation, he's not talking about becoming a Christian. He's not talking about being saved. He's saying, now that you are saved... You need to grow up now. You need to grow up in this salvation that you've got. So here's what it's going to take. He said you need to crave 
pure spiritual milk, just like a newborn baby would crave milk. And he's talking about the Scripture. We're going to see that in a minute. But all through the New Testament, the pure milk of the Scripture is what he's talking about. And he says, you crave that pure spiritual milk so that, now there's the reason why, so that by it, the milk, you may grow. Okay, so if the Scripture is the milk upon which I grow as a believer, then I've got to crave that stuff. I've got to consume it because that's how I'm going to grow and to mature. Now let me read you one other passage. It's in the book of Hebrews that deals with the same idea. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Let me work our way through this, okay? The author of Hebrews says this, We have much to say about this. Now he's talking about maturity and, and growing up as a Christian. He says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you. Because you no longer try to understand. Man, what an indictment. He said, I've got it, so much I want to tell you about this, about your gro- Christian growth and maturity. And He said, but you're not even trying to understand. The next verse he says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now don't miss this, okay? He's not saying that everybody ought to be a teacher. He's simply saying that by this time in your Christian life, you ought to have the knowledge that you can answer questions when they're asked of you by people that don't know. You ought to have the knowledge that you would feel comfortable talking to somebody about the matters of, of the faith. You ought to have the knowledge that you could feel confident enough to stand toe-to-toe and to help somebody who maybe is searching to know Jesus Christ in a better way. You should be able to do that. You should be able to take somebody that's facing a tragedy or grief, and you should be able to comfort them through the Scriptures. You should know that. He said, all of this is where you should be. But in fact, you have to go back because of who you are, where you are in your Christian life, this process of maturity. You need to go back and get back on the bottle again and get the basic elementary truths of Scripture nailed down because you don't know them. You're still uncertain about where everything fits and who God is and how this works and who you are in Christ and all of the great truths of the Scripture, you still don't know it. See, that's where you need to be. Not solid food. Not yet. You need to go back. In verses 13 and 14, listen to this. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now notice what he says. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now what he's saying is this. You don't still know what it is that God wants from you. You are the kind of person who, when somebody says to you, do you realize the Scripture says that's sinful? You say, oh, no, really, does it? Because, see, I don't know the teaching about righteousness. I don't know what the Scripture says. 
Why not? See, this is what the writer of Hebrews is asking. Why not? How long have you been a Christian? You ought to know this stuff. You can't grow if you don't know. You can't grow in your faith if you don't know what it is that the faith has to say. The faith is the Scripture. The apostles' teaching. That's how it's presented in the Bible. The faith. I've got to know this if I'm ever going to grow. Now, last night, like I told you, my little granddaughter was born about 7 o'clock last night. Her name is Avery. An easy birth is much better than the first one. Um, And immediately she's crying for food. My daughter nurses her children. She did with Maddie. And she's going to nurse Avery as well. So she's nursing her. And she's just eating up a storm. You know, that's the only thing she knows to do, having just been born. It's just a suckle. Now, Maddie, on the other hand, being two and a half years old, she's eating chips and hot sauce. I don't think there's a thing she's ever put in front of that kid she didn't eat. I mean, she'll just devour everything. You know, that's expected. At the age one of them is and the age of the other is, they're eating according to who they are in this process of growing. Now, you know what would be sad is this. It would be sad if Maddie, the older one, was still suckling and still nursing. That would be sad. There has to come a point when she physically grows up and does what she's supposed to do at her age and eat what she's supposed to eat. The same thing is true of us as Christians. Because growing is a part of life, just like physical growing, spiritual growing is a part of life. And we as believers sometimes don't see the importance of that, and we become content to live on somebody else's faith. We're content for somebody just to tell us what to do. And no, we can't stand up for ourselves because we're not strong enough, because we're not not eating like we should. And I want to tell you this, mature faith cannot be built on what other people tell you. In the early stages, yes, a person who doesn't know the Lord listens to somebody that they respect and they see it in the Bible and they say, yeah, I believe it. I don't understand it completely, but I put my faith in it and I understand it. And they're very dependent on people like yourself and myself, people that know the Word and can teach them and help them. But there has to come a point where they grow and mature. And they can't mature if all they ever get is what you tell them. There has to come a point in time where they are convinced that this is true because you know what? They have studied it and the Spirit of God has convinced them that it's true and now they are committed to it because they have found it to be true. You see, they can stand up on their own. So you have to be convinced from your own study, feeding on the Word of God, what the teaching of righteousness really is. I can guide you and these teachers that you come to Sunday school and growth groups and youth group and children, all these, they can help you. But it's just a kickstart. If that's all you ever get, it will not be enough. And you're not going to grow the way that God wants you to. Back in one of my previous ministries, 
there was a lady there, we'll call her Janet. Um, I don't want to use her name because this, these uh, sermons are out online. And, um, but she was married to a, a guy we'll call Bob. And Janet had been raised Catholic. And uh, Bob had been coming to the church for a little while. And, and uh, he had been raised um, another denomination and started coming to our church. And Eventually, his wife began to show up occasionally and tag along with him, but she was real standoffish and real, uh, you know, cautious because we weren't Catholic, and that's all she had ever known. Um, you know, as time goes on, I think I was able to get her into one of the Sunday school classes, and uh, she met with me a time or two, and I, you know, shared the gospel with her, and and she made a profession of faith. Uh, I'm not sure as I look back on it because. There was one day when we were talking, and she was asking me some things, and then she looked at me before she left, and she said, so I'm okay, right? Meaning she's, okay, she's saved. She said, okay, I'm okay, right, with the Lord. I said, well, what does the Bible say? I said, the Bible tells you that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that God saves you out of his grace, and it's, and, uh, it's a gift of God. She said, okay, if you say so. And I've never forgotten that. Because you know what? She kind of fell by the wayside, and uh, within a year she was divorced and back in the Catholic Church. And I found out later what it was is this, that she had been spoon-fed what little she knew all of her life in the church that she was in, and she was comfortable with going to the priest and being, you know, uh, forgiven for whatever she confessed and spoon-fed everything and everybody giving her direction and everybody telling her what to do. And she had no responsibility, no decisions that she ever had to make. And so she comes into this in talking to her about her faith and trying to get her to understand her relationship to the Lord and so forth. And she just freaked out. And her faith, what little was there, if it was there, was based on what I told her, and that was it. Okay, if you tell me that, that uh, I'll believe it. But it didn't last very long. And I wonder to this day about her. I don't know. I really don't. But if what you get is the only thing, only thing you ever get is what you get on a Sunday morning, it's not going to be enough. I can tell you that now. Now, am I saying to you that this isn't important? Well, of course not. Now, let me show you this passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to just work through it for a moment, so just bear with me. I want to look at verses 11 through 13 to begin with. Now watch what it says, because this is Paul talking, and he, he he's unfolds some things here that you need to understand. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, in other words, he gave them to the church. To equip his people for works of service. All right, stop right there. This is why God gave different men and women to the church that have gifts that are able to edify and build up the church. A pastor, a teacher, evangelist, prophets, and so forth. People within the church that work to bring people out and to bring them up in their faith. He says, to equip his people for works of service. Now watch this. So that, here's the reason why, the body of Christ may be built up. 
until, now listen, because this until tells you to what extent the pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists are to be working in the lives of the people. Until we all reach unity in the faith, that means we all have come up now and are walking with the Lord, we have unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, that means understanding who He is, what He's done, our identity in Him, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I know, don't miss this, okay? He's saying this, I, as God, he says, gave to the church, that's universal, the church is all believers, these different roles or responsibilities, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth, and their job is to build you up until you're able to stand on your own. Until you have reached the fullness of maturity in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that the job ends there, but the roles take on a different look. Because whereas I may be ministering to you and teaching you, there has to come a point where you rise up to a maturity level where you begin to do that too. It just seems like in Christianity, and I've noticed this not only in my churches, but other churches that I've, I've observed. People are content to let somebody else do their walk for them. And they're content with just having somebody else to tell them what to do. And then we have to ask this question, well, what do you do then? Like in the book of Judges, when the judge dies, or your pastor is gone, your teacher quits, people fall by the wayside, you're your mentor that you trusted all of your life is gone. What do you do then? Are you like the Israelites who go back because they don't have the strength to stand on their own? They go back into the old way of living? When this happens, when this maturity takes place in the church, now watch what takes place. Now watch in verses 14 and 15 of this passage in Ephesians. If you're maturing, experiencing the full measure of the fullness of Christ, here's what happens. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Wow. (laughs) How many times, you know, in your life have you been thrown about, spiritually speaking, believing everything you hear, being confused over what you hear? having doubts about your salvation, questioning whether you're a Christian, because some moron, for lack of a better word, I get angry over this, has taught you something that is not biblically true and you didn't know the difference. Guys, you've got to know. You've got to know the Bible. There's no shortcut to this. There's no silver bullet to the Christian life. You have got to know it. So that you can stand on your own. Your identity 
You need to know that. You need to know who God is and who Christ is and what He's done. You need to understand that you're His child, that you're loved, you're forgiven, you're justified. That you can do anything that God calls you to do because He says, I'll give you the strength to do it. You don't have to be afraid. But if I don't know that from the Scriptures, then it will always be the pastor standing up there browbeating me. And you've got to be convinced of this because you have seen it for yourself in the Bible. There is no shortcut. Very quickly, let me, one quick challenge in regard to this first point here about having a good working knowledge of the Scriptures. And this is, this is the challenge, okay? You need to come up with a study plan that works for you. A plan of study that works for you. Not what somebody else does, but whatever works for you. I suggest that you work through a book of the Bible. Take as long as it takes. You're not in a hurry. And you need to study for the purpose of learning, not just studying to get it done. This is a big issue with Christians, okay? We all hear that all you need to have a quiet time. You need to study your Bible. And so we plow through it to accomplish and be able to check off each week what we've done, and we learn nothing. Stop doing that. God doesn't care how much you read if you don't learn anything from it. Study to learn. That's the only thing that matters. To be able to walk away from that time that you spent with God, if it's only five minutes. But God showed me something in that book that I've never seen before, and I just can't shake it. That's when you begin to grow. That's my challenge, that you become a person who has a good working knowledge of the Bible. Because that's what it's going to take for you and me to be able to stand on our own. Now, very quickly, and I'm going to move quickly, okay? Here's the second point. That is a commitment to live out what you learn. Okay, so I learn it. I learned what the Bible says about my relationship to the Lord and who I am. What do I do with it? Well, you're going to have to start applying it to your life. When you begin to have doubts about it, you need to stand up and say, no, 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 this is what the Bible says. I know that because I studied it. And because I know it, I don't have to be afraid. Because I know what it says, I don't have to grieve like those who don't know the Lord grieve. I can stand on that because I know that it's true. Listen to this. This is a verse I read but I didn't get into. But it's in Hebrews chapter 5, the last verse, verse 14. It says this, but solid food is for the mature. Here's what, who the mature are. Who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The mature is the person that takes the Bible and he reads it and he has a good working knowledge of it. And then he puts it into use. He applies it. He lives it. And he says, because of constant use... You have trained yourself to distinguish good from evil. In other words, you know what to do. And then you make a commitment to do it. That's maturity. That's growth. That's standing on your own. I don't need for my pastor to tell me what to do. I can see it for myself. I know. pastor encourages me and we work together and we hold each other up. But... I can stand on my own. That's where you need to be. You need to be able to stand on your own to to feed yourself. You need to be able to stand on your own to distinguish good from evil, to lead somebody, to teach somebody, to say no to bad choices, be able to trust Him in times of tragedy. All of this comes from your own personal walk with God.
not my faith, it's your faith. And that's where you need to be. I want to challenge you as I wrap this up real quick. Um, that as you study the scriptures, and, I, and I'm encouraging you to do that, okay? As you study the scriptures, you should be able to write out an application for your life from everything you study. If you study something about Jesus Christ and your, your, your identity in him, that you are in Christ and that this is what the Bible teaches, then God, what do I do with that? And all of a sudden you begin to think through, you know what that means to me? If I'm in Him, I don't have to worry anymore. Write that down. Next time something happens in your life and you begin to worry, you go back and say, no, I don't. Here's what it says right here. I'm applying what I've learned and now my life has changed. That's growth. That's maturity. That's where you need to be. So yeah, it's my prayer that each one of us will begin to stand on our own. I'm not trying to get out of a job, okay? I'm not trying to shirk responsibility. I'm trying to grow you up the way God called me to do. It's not my job to do your thinking for you. It's not my job to have your faith for you. It's my job to lead you there. But in the end, you have to stand. You have to stand. And that's my prayer. If you are not a believer and you're here this morning, let me close with one last verse. Here it is. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says this. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's how you're saved. That's why you are a Christian. That's how you get to heaven. It's that simple. It's not because you were righteous or good because God says we can't be. But he says, I died for you on a cross. And when you put your faith in me, I declare you righteous. That right there, if you don't understand it, you have to stand on that. The next time somebody questions your salvation or the devil throws something at you that says you're not really a Christian, how can anybody love you? You pull that verse out and you say, no, it says right here. Not because of my righteousness. I know I'm a stinker. God knows it. And he still loves me. So get out of here. See, that's standing on the word. But you've got to know it first. If you've never understood that, then please come see me. I'd love to sit down with you and help you to understand that. There's a yellow card in the seat back in front of you. If you want to, fill it out, and I'll be more than happy to meet with you. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this service out, Father, I pray for each one of us that as your children, having put our faith in you, that we would learn to stand up for ourselves. That our faith would be ours based on what we have known to be true. Out of your word, not because somebody else tells me it's so, but because I am convinced from your word. Lord, make us all better students, students of your word, that we might know it. But then, Father, help us to take the next step and to live it with every dart of doubt and fear that is thrown our way. May we confront it boldly with the truth of your word, that we might stand strong on our own. In Jesus' name.